Hello, everyone. It's Adasha Townsend of the Feast and Fashion Podcast. I'm a longtime food and beverage journalist who's worked with some of the top brands in the world. With each podcast episode, I will introduce you to fascinating people in the culinary world. Today's Chef Nilma Patel joins me. She's a self-taught chef, fourth generation Indian born in East Africa. And in some circles, she's known as the headband chef. Her obsession is the globalization of food and how far we've come with it. So Chef Nilma, tell me about how you got started in the whole culinary space. So I feel like I've been cooking ever since I remember, but I was truly inspired when my grandmother visited um, Malawi, which is a East African country. And we're all from East Africa, but my grandparents retired back to India when they were in their 50s. And the first time she came to this new country that my parents had just moved to, I learned so much about her, how she had catered so many weddings in her lifetime for her nieces and nephews, um, you know, in different countries like England and Africa and India. And, um, you know, I just kind of connected with her and understood that we both had this natural ability. My mom already cooked amazing foods um, at that point, but I wasn't at that age level to be completely inspired. I used to bake a little here and there, but when my grandmother came is when I first learned all my traditional Indian food, my traditional Indian Gujarati food, you know, your day-to-day staple items from my um, background, from where I come from in the state of Gujarat. And I think that was really the beginning of my journey. I think somewhere along the line when we got busy with child raising and family, you know, um, careers, corporate careers, uh, a lot of my food was just really quick and easy. And, you know, it was um, more to, um, you know, go from day to day and it was nothing special, right? I didn't have time to focus on it, but it was really when I gave up my corporate job. And for years, people had been saying, because I did throw parties where I did fancy food and I catered parties for like over 75 people at a time. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every aspect of it. I just knew that couldn't be the day part of my, um, you know, career or profession because I'd never thought about it. And then when I started staying home with the children is when um, within the first six months, I knew that I was not meant to stay at home, but this is what I absolutely had to do. My husband was traveling a lot at the time. So um, I wasn't really a single parent, but I was there most of the time. And what I realized is that there wasn't enough to do in the day being a homemaker. And um, how much can you clean, right? So that really started focusing on developing recipes and working on the recipes that I already knew. And, you know, also I think like the whole culture in America changed with the availability of ingredients. I've now been in this country for 30 years and I've seen how food has traveled, how we have globalized as a market with the Mm -hmm. ingredients we can buy today. And I think more than today, more than ever, Today, you can find any kind of spice from anywhere from this world in America. You can source those ingredients, right? Back in the day when we first moved here, I was 16. My parents were in their late 40s. And I remember my mom had to source all her ethnic ingredients, a lot of them, from back home or from India, where my grandmother was. And, you know, it wasn't just... It's not even so expensive. It's all the logistics, right? Back in the day, it wasn't so easy. There weren't that many career companies. Either you traveled back and brought stuff back. And um, yes, initially when they first started coming in the market, they were expensive. But now it's not just my diaspora that are using these spices. Everyone is. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and not just Indian food, you know, today in my home, I can make any kind of food thanks to Amazon. <laughs> I want you to talk about how the three cultures, you said you lived in East Africa, mm-hmm. you grew up in India too, and now you've been in the United States for 30 plus years. Yes. So how have those three cultures, how do you merge those three cultures in your culinary point of view? So I have never lived in India. I have visited India as a child. Okay. I was born in Tanzania. I lived there until about 10 years old. And then my parents moved for jobs to another country in East Africa, which is Malawi. And then I lived in Malawi for another six years. So as a teenager is when I immigrated into the United States. But my food is completely inspired by all of my experiences living in all these three countries. Um, When we speak about Tanzania, of course, I am considered fourth generation in Tanzania because my great grandfather, my grandfather, my dad and I, we have all lived there. Okay, I may have been the only one born there, but because, you know, back in the day, the ladies went back to India to give childbirth. But um, we are a fourth generation Indian family in East Africa, and our food is richly inspired by all of the spices available in that one country. So um, just going back to the 16th century and the spice trade of the world, right, the Arabs and a lot of the explorers brought all of these spices that they source from different parts of the world to the very rich soils of Tanzania and the island of Zanzibar. And these Arab land barons that owned like land over like acres and acres of land actually cultivated some of those spices there. So while some of the spices are originally from that area, a lot of them were brought in. And this is how like even my Indian food is quite different from my in-law side because my food is um, inspired from like all of those and not just inspired, but the availability of those ingredients, right? Like your average person may not be able to buy a bag of cloves at a really inexpensive price. But because we were in a country where they harvested that clove or that cardamom pod or that cinnamon or the cumin or any of those spices, it was readily available for us to use in the quantities that we wanted to. So it streamlined our processes, it improved um, or it distinguished our food from like other areas. And then also because most of these nations in Africa were at some point colonized, you know, and Mm -hmm. at the same time, they weren't just colonized by the British or the Dutch, but, you know, the Europeans brought other countries together, right? Like people from other, they were basically workers from other parts of the world that came and settled in these spaces. So even the ethnic local food was kind of enriched or, you know, fused, like a lot of like the curries of Tanzania were brought by the Indians there. You know, a lot of like the pastries that we eat in Tanzania were brought by the Arabs. And um, so it's such an amalgamation and there's such a history behind food. Like sometimes what we think is our own from our diaspora is really not our own. Like mm. I used to be so proud of like the chai and samosas. And that's the name of my club. But I was so proud of like chai and samosa being like that Indian national pastime only to come to find out that really samosa um, was brought to India from the Middle East. You know, it was called something else. And during the Mughal Empire, it was brought down um, into the country and then it kind of spinned off into different varieties. But that's where it originated from. Same thing with chai. Chai originated in China and it went to all different parts of the world. So I was so proud saying Indian people drink chai, but really chai is not ours to call ours. 
you know? So, um, How do you usually go about finding this information, all this historical context about uh, the different culinary cultures? What have you done? So I have a PhD in um, the University of Google. <laughs> I also have connections. I have some amazing we women chefs, um, men chefs that I've linked up with who are not chefs per se, like they make dishes and serve to people, but they're food historians, you know, yeah. they research these items. And um, I have just learned so much in the last three months. It's amazing being on different platforms, but um, it's just research. You research, you read, right? You keep enriching yourself. Um, I'm an instructional chef, but I think I told you in one of my bios that I constantly learn. And that's what I want to spread to all of the people that I teach my um, courses to. So now you're a self-taught chef. What are some aspects of that being a self-taught chef um, that you're most proud of that you've learned to do that you've really delved in and you've mastered? So um, before I answer that completely, I will tell you for years, I was embarrassed every time someone called me chef. So about 12 years ago, I started this culinary journey and I was just a home cook. I was just a caterer. I was just a blogger. You know, I never ever in my wildest dream thought that I would be called chef one day. And then I opened up my little quaint cafe in this very historic town that was surrounded by nine restaurants and bars, most of them which were chef owned and ran. And when some of those chefs started calling me chefs, like, I'm like, no, 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 I didn't go to school for this. Um, I don't deserve the title, right? And they're like, no, what you're doing, you are a chef. Even then I didn't call myself a chef because it takes a lot of you know um, accolades to be in that position. And I finally started accepting that title when I became a manager of a team of 18 with nine amazing chefs as part of the team. And I had to work right along with all those chefs. Not only did I develop talent and manage them, but I got to learn so much. And that it was only two years ago and only about for two years, I've been known as Chef Noma and I am comfortable taking that title on now and you know they say you're the hardest on yourself so um i still feel like i need to go to school for this but now i have enough chefs who have been to very elite programs tell me that just because you go to a cooking school does not make you a chef you graduate from a cooking school as a cook but whether to become a chef or not is in your destiny and your hard work and so now finally i'm at that stage where i can say Hi, this is Chef Noma. And I think that one of the best qualities I have as a chef is that I am very flexible. You know, I am not scared of any type of cuisine. Um, I love experimenting. And then also I'm able to convert things into actual recipes. So that recipe development part is one of my, um, I would say the strongest points as a chef. Is That's a, important. Yeah, like I can throw stuff together, which is my style of cooking. But when you ask me for that recipe, I will write it down for you and it will come out exactly that way. So I That's think it's a art that only a professional can do. That's a huge skill. Yeah. Talk about some of your favorite dishes that you have modernized, um, Indian dishes that you've modernized during your journey. So I am actually not a fan of fusion which kind of hypocritical because I do enjoy going to fusion restaurants, but my style of cooking, I don't like to blend the two because I like to keep it very organic 
meaning very um, ethnic and grounded and give credit to the roots and origins of those dishes. But when it comes to modernization or when it comes to fusion, I think that the East African in me and the recipes I bring from there are considered the amalgamation of all of these diasporas, right? Like I make this um, jira chicken curry and jira basically means cumin, okay? So mm -hmm. it's this brown gravy chicken that is made with cumin, coriander, and just greens. There's no color in it except for that nice, rich, dark brown gravy. And that is something I, I bring that's different from like other Indian chefs or Indian, you know, um, food influencers or bloggers. And, you know, many people have done this over and over again, but I still feel like if you haven't had the jira chicken, <sighs> Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, or from Nairobi, Kenya, then it's not jira, you know? Yeah. So I take huge pride in stuff like that. We have another one called kukupaka, which is a coconut um, infused curry. And that, again, it's so color derived. It has to be a nice, pure, like cream white color. And it's just basically made with sekela chicken. Sekela means barbecued. So it's this chicken pieces that are marinated like in garlic, ginger, and like jalapenos or serranos with lemon juice, a little bit of cardamom, a little bit of clove, cinnamon. And then it's barbecued on top of coals. And then there's a separate gravy made with onions and coconut and all of the aromatics, but it shouldn't change color. The coconut water or the coconut milk should retain its color. So there's no turmeric in there. Originally, there's no turmeric in there. There's very little tomato base, right? And that is your true kukupaka. And then at the very end, once everything is kind of um, stewed together, once the marinated barbecued pieces of chicken and it's always bone in chicken because you have to like kind of go in and you know suck out all of the juices from the bones um you add hard-boiled eggs it's like you know it's like the you know the final like um when you do a performance it's like the what is that word you use um it's like the final piece, you know, and it's necessary. So it's normally chicken legs and chicken thighs with hard boiled eggs and a coconut curry. And that is again, something that what you asked me about mastering a fusion, it's not my original recipe, but it is something that comes from that background of mine. And I love it. Wow. Okay. Um, so earlier we were talking about how your grandmother influenced and inspired you to cook. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, I hear that from a lot of chefs, a lot of culinary artists of how their family has influenced them. And um, how exactly did, did that happen? Were you like in the kitchen? Did you watch her? Was it just from eating some of the foods that she was cooking? How exactly were you inspired? So basically, my grandmother also kind of grew up in East Africa. So her um, dishes were a little different than my mom's. My mom's a great cook and so is my dad. Like that doesn't happen in Indian families, <laughs> right? So my dad always cooked all the non-vegetarian things in the house, meaning all the meat stuff, right? And for a long time, we didn't have to cook it at home because we belonged to like a club where we went on the weekends to eat the jira or the cuckoo or the biryanis or anything that had to do with meat, like the kebabs and stuff. So mom never really had to make it at home. So we primarily had like Gujarati food, but my mom is from India. 
So her food was inspired by like the country that she moved to, but it was a lot more Gujarati. So when my grandmother came to ta uh, back to East Africa to visit us that one summer, um, apart from the fact that my mom was always a working mom and couldn't really teach me, um, my grandmother could actually stand there and teach me. And she didn't just teach me because I wanted to learn. She taught me because I had to learn. Like that was a life skill, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most Indian girls are taught very young at a young age how to make the staple foods of a family and what are the staples so like roti like we make roti every day some sort of flatbread okay uh, lentils are big we eat them at least four times a week um not so much now but in a typical indian family you'll have like a vegetable a lentil a roti and a little bit of rice that's your main meal those okay. four things Okay, so um, we ate that like four times a week growing up. It was standard meals. And then, you know, my mom would call fancy Fridays and she'll make like pizza or spaghetti on Friday. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, we were always out either at the club or my parents were very social. They were part of like the Lions Club and they were part of their, you know, um, intercultural activities like da dance competitions, food competitions. And so we lived a great life in East Africa, you know, I mean, for me, it was really sad seeing my parents like first come to this country and trying to find themselves, you know, because they kind of came from this place of privilege. Like we weren't, we weren't rich per se, right? We weren't um, born in money, but the lifestyle was very luxurious because, okay. you know, that's what was afforded to you. So it was all lifestyle based living. They worked Monday through Friday. Um, we had parameters, like we went to private schools. So to see my parents work labor jobs initially when they first came to this country was super hard for me but thank god to my grandmother who taught me all those skills and all those dishes that i knew how to make at 16 years old i was a main part of meals in my house right i would come from high school my mom worked the second shift my dad worked the first shift so dad would come home for dinner but mom would take dinner to work with her so in between that time and you know like years ago we also didn't eat stale food so everything had to be fresh like we've come a long way from that as working women but you know i remember i would have to finish whatever mom couldn't for dinner for me and my dad so um the skills that my grandmother instilled in me came hand in handy and um even much later when i got married i got married into a family that was very food focused as far as eating at home and not you know really going out all the time so all of the skills that were instilled in me definitely came in handy i guess my grandmother knew exactly what she was doing you know like i said she single-handedly catered events like 300 400 people so that was my aspiration actually I know you have different cooking classes. They're mostly virtual, correct? Mm -hmm. All virtual and now. How are you showcasing yourself with these virtual classes and sh showcasing your culinary point of view with these classes? So first of all, each one of my classes are core curriculums that I write. Um, normally, it's a full meal that my clients make within a two and a half to three hour time frame. So the dishes are really just based on trends currently, on things people want to learn how to make. Uh, over the last two and a half years, I've become familiar with what people do want to learn how to make at home. Over the last one year, it seems like you can even make water and oil exciting <laughs> um, because of Wait. just the current situation. <laughs> Talk about that, water and oil? Yes, a good instructor can make wa water and oil seem very exciting. 
it's like the, your artillery you need, you know, you need to know how to talk about the simplest thing and make it fun for someone because you may not realize this, but lots of people prior to this pandemic in the United States hardly cooked at home. I, in my professional wow. life of instructional cooking, I have met people in their 40s and 50s, and I've just wondered in my head, how did these people survive all this time? <laughs> you know, when back, and questions are fine because we're all learning here, but because of where I come from and what I know and what I think everyone should know as a life skill, a basic life skill. Mm -hmm. I often wonder how people survived so far, you know. Drive-throughs and uh, takeout yeah. and lots of delivery. I, I've, I've noticed the same. In fact, I posted something on Facebook about how, you know, I couldn't believe that in this day and age that people couldn't cook. And you should have seen the response that I got, that people like were really upset with me because I brought that up. And they, they were like, really? I mean, you can't boil water. You can't boil an egg. You'll burn an egg. So I agree. It is, it is yeah. amazing. It is amazing. I am so glad that I belong to the culture I do because, you know, not even because we are taught early on, because there are lots of girls in my culture that aren't taught well, right? Like if I had a daughter, um, I wouldn't want her to focus on that. I want her to learn. Like I've taught my boys well. I want them to learn basic survival, but I don't want them to become chefs like at this stage of their life. When they finally do make dishes, I want them to enjoy doing that. So I'm one of those moms that's guilty of it. Like I haven't really properly trained my boys. But what I've noticed is when they grow with the culture, like we have already focused as, you know, my kids got fast food once a week for sure on the weekends, but it was never because mom couldn't put something out from the fridge or something fresh, right? Because it is health related. There is a huge issue in this country with health. And right. even with people who have very healthy kids today, if you're constantly feeding them fast food, and if you're constantly not trying to implement diet rules and, you know, um, just healthy things into their diet, it's going to affect them later. So what are you doing for them? Talk about the fun stuff that you're cooking though. Some of the, in your culinary classes, I want you to talk about some of the fun aspects and what yeah. types of cuisines and dishes that you're, you're. Absolutely. So obviously, you know, like um, when somebody walks into a kitchen studio to take a Chinese class, they want a Chinese person teaching when they walk into a studio and they're going to take an Indian class. They want someone Indian teaching it. So, of course, at the top of my list are all my Indian classes that I teach. They normally get fully um, enrolled. And most people want to learn like the, you know, different chicken tikka masala, which is really a cliche, like it's not really Indian food, but they want to learn how to make the different curries. And my job with Indian food, like my focus is just to decipher the whole word curry because it is misused and it's mis it's un misunderstood in so many levels curry is not a spice it's actually curry literally means gravy okay it means sauce okay. and regionally all across india you can find different kinds of curries so there's no one type of curry so when um the british colonized the term and i think that they colonized the term because you know they took spice blends from different parts of the countries and because um people from their diaspora couldn't take the amount of heat they kind of made it a little more milder and did a combination of mixes with like some european spices like if you look at like a madras curry powder you'll see it has mustard in it right Right? But it's not the Indian mustard. It's actually like the ground stone, ground French mustard, which is not traditional in Indian cooking. We do use mustard seeds, but we never like 
powder it to use it in many applications. It's used mainly for pickling when you use it like that. So I think like curry, the curry spice term came from a colonized space from, you know, a century ago. And it mm -hmm. kind of stuck because these colonized um, colon colonies were formed all over, you know, the world, right? So you have like Jamaican curry, you have Trinidad and curry, you have Guyanese curry, you have East African curry. But ultimately, we all know that there's no such thing as a curry spice blend. Okay. How many curries are there? There's so many, so many. And that's part of my um, research when I do like my recipe book. Um, it's all about different curries from all around the world. And we want to decipher and we want to actually stop using it as a stereotype because it is a stereotype, right? Kind of. And okay. um, I think that we can go along with it because more than ever today, people are interested in the globalization of food, in the history of food, in how food travels. I mean, Think about this one thing I'm going to tell you, okay? You can find apples in Fuji that are grown in America. So mm -hmm. think about that for a minute. We <laughs> are exporting apples to the Fiji Islands, you know? Or you can find the Indian mango in Germany, you know, all year round for that matter. So these are the things that we have to think about and how it affects like our environment too, because think about all the logistics, right? The transportation of that globalized item from one space to another. So that is my whole philosophy on food. I love teaching online, but I'm also very passionate about, you know, the sustainability of food, um, the origination also, you know, the, um, uh, I think they say in the next 10 years, we are going to have to increase our global food pantry by 300 percent mm. why that. is that because we're just so globalized right now with everything going everywhere right and with mass production that we are stripping all our natural resources too fast so when we do that there's going to be a lack of food right and as our population increases by a small percent every year we need more food and that's not happening which is why a lot more processed food companies are doing well because they are not as natural right they're only about 60 percent or 50 percent natural so it's going to affect our whole like globalization especially on the food map you know so um it's interesting to get back to your classes yeah and <laughs> so one of my most popular class besides chicken tikka masala is beef wellington people want technique based stuff yeah so there's all levels of um enrollments right we have people who just want to learn basic things we want people who want to learn technique based there are people who just want to do baking classes and you know as an entrepreneur very new in this industry of my own teaching virtually um i feel like a year later i'm still testing waters because what you think will run may not run so can mm. you operate multiple times so it's still in the growing phase but i've done well with most classes i offer and in fact now i'm working with a platform to change the logistics of it because I'm at this stage where I can't wear all the hats anymore, right? Because it takes me about six to eight hours just to do the curriculum part. Then I have to market the class. Then I have to constantly engage on those people who may be interested. Then I have to um, give live support to people shopping for their ingredients, then all the directions. So from writing the curriculum to teaching a class, I wear all the hats. So this last couple of months, I've been working with a couple of different companies to streamline my process so that I can sell one class, but 20 times over. And that class that works very effective. And for me, it is mainly Indian food, but 
iPad pasta making classes, which are very popular. A lot of the team building works I do, like corporate team building, it's very simple. It's like maybe making a bread or making a pizza because not everyone comes to a team building event wants to make food, but it's something that their company set for them to come together from different parts of the country mm -hmm. while working virtually. So um, it depends. I, I understand you, you're, you're pivoting now into the consumer packaged goods industry. Yes. So it's my dream. It's been my dream for the last 16 years to have a packaged goods um, item on a store shelf. And finally, with all of the connections I've made in the last one year, because we finally had time to like hone in into all of our ventures, um, um, I want a package good for one of my recipes that I have already formulated. I want to scale it up and offer it to the masses. And, um, you know, everything is all about research. So I've done all my research. It's also about researching like companies to work with, like co-packers, understanding all the CPG terminology. That's where the food and beverage magazine comes in. They've been a tremendous help to my venture. Um, and, you know, just making connections with people. So, yeah, my dream is to have a uh, packaged good, whether it's a bottled spice or a sauce or a full item, um, to be on the shelf with that Chef Nilma. So yes. that's I what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I totally want see it. Well, how do you envision the package? What do you envision the packaging to look like? So uh, I have two different products now, and one is going to be a bottled product. So for a very long time, I wanted it to be branded like New Jersey grown. So I had been working with like the agriculture department in New Jersey to use some of the produce that we grow annually. But, you know, supply and demand. And then, of course, you know, the cost of doing this, right? It's huge. And I don't mind if I break even, but I want one product out first, because if you do one thing successfully, everything else kind of follows. Mm -hmm. And um, my vision is that it's a sustainable ingredient, number one, sustainable product. Okay, so I I did much research on this. I ordered a lot of food kits, a lot of products, right? And I'm constantly studying them. Like if I'm getting a glass jar of something, right? That jar has to be recyclable. It has to be reusable. Um, I've gotten products that just come with too much packaging, and you know, there's a lot of like environmental hazard to it. So there's so many aspects to this, but. The main thing I want is it has to pop out that this is Chef Noma's product that she's constantly talking about in her classes or in her lives or in her Instagram. And we now want to use this product. So what do you see that looking like? How do you envision this packaging of your products when it's like on the shelves mm -hmm. and people are walking by in the grocery store and they're seeing it? What do we see? So it has to visually scream out something Indian. So colors and design is a number one thing. Of course, my name should be on it. But I think when you walk by a product, if it has something fun on it, like a paisley print with like a neon color, I think mm -hmm. it just kind of pops, right? Like how many times do you go down the um, international aisle and you look over and in the Spanish section, everything's just popping to you. Uh -huh. So to me, that's very important. I follow some other food labels who are already doing this. And one of the things is it's a visual. Like you have to say, oh, wow, this looks different. This looks very Indian. So how can I incorporate like an Indian design to the labeling? Labeling is something I haven't even looked at yet. You is know? your face going to so, be on it? No, I don't think so. I, I have a feeling that I might have like a character of myself on it. Okay. Um, for a long time, I've dabbled with like Chef Nilma with like the F being the knife. I'm not sure yet. Chef with the F as a, you know, knife. That's cute. So, 
Yeah, and so like I said, I'm not going to wear the hat on this one. I'm totally going to force it to someone who has already done it just for their expertise because I think that's necessary. Like if you're already investing so much on a product, the labeling, you know, you I feel like you need all the functions to work. It can't just be a product. Like I've heard lots of people say to me, if my product is good, people will come. Yes, that's true. But in this packaging world, must look good. Exactly. So speaking of which you have, you have a keen fashion sense and your headband. I've noticed that you were talking about you're the headband yeah. queen. So when I worked for Sir Latab as their resident chef, and of course, like we talked about namesakes, right? Like Chef Milma. And um, there were lots of clients who met me for the first time who may have had used our program for many years, but I was the new resident chef there. So I was the new manager of the program. And uh, I remember one client saying, oh, the chef with the headband. And that's when it clicked that, yes, I do wear headbands all the time. And I have like all these flyaways. So I have to make sure like this is a skinny headband, but for my classes, I always wear a chunky one. And I think because we have to tie up our hair, because I'm a huge mm. believer on, you know, I mean, do you know how many times I see influencers or chefs working like on live TV and mm -hmm. their hair is all over, the, all over the place? Can't have that. You got to tie it back, you know? So I think just as a fashion statement, I started doing that because it brought some pizzazz. Like my hair is very thin. It's, I can't do many fashionable things with it by itself, right? Like I wish I could get like a weave and just keep it there all the time, but I can't. And it's very fine. So the uh, headband actually gives me an edge and I uh, loved it at that stage. They started calling me the headband chef and it kind of stuck. Well, I actually can envision your animated face on the packaging with the headband, with the headband. Mm -hmm. and you know you're you have such a beautiful smile i could totally see that with your hair pulled back and a cute little headband a vibrant headband and mm -hmm. there you go there's your packaging right there chef Nyoma. Mm -hmm. you're definitely onto something you might have to give you credit for that one <laughs> yeah no so you know like uh, uh i don't even know what it's called but just an outline of my mm -hmm. face would be perfect with that headband i, I could totally see it yeah. awesome yeah and finally chef Nyoma, you have this amazing spice case that I have got to see. I want you to talk to me about the importance of the spices and a spice case in the Indian community and in Indian culture before you show me yours. Yeah, absolutely. So most Indian girls grew up watching their moms um, have a full supply of spices. You know, um, when you go, but like when I used to go over to my friends' homes, like who were Caucasian Americans, you know, or even non, but just Americans, like you would see like a couple of bottle of spices and you're like, no, my mom has like this glass pickle jar that my cousin who works at so-and-so pharmacy saved for her from all the pickles from the deli and she has a collection of them in her pantry with like a supply of a year of turmeric or chili powder or coriander or cumin and um that is what we indian girls grew up watching our moms buy these spices in bulk like you know two to five pound bags and then dumping them in these huge like i have them all in my basement downstairs okay. but what i also do is i store little amounts up here for functionality so all of my spices are right here and now because my mother-in-law currently stays with us and i don't want to strip all of her independence so she does cook her meals here but she's also elderly and reaching out for the spices is kind of hard she has a little bit of a shake so I also keep some spices right on my counter for her for easy access because she's very plain food. So she okay. doesn't eat all of the spices, but the rest of them are all in there. 
and in here and while i love using spices from like scratch i also use a lot of mixes so i have oh. those up there but ultimately i think like how do you cook without spice like you know i am very um um i'm ignorant about that like i don't know how you can just see something and put salt and pepper and eat it um obviously how many spices do you think that you have in your kitchen right now probably like over a hundred Wow. Well, that includes the blends, okay? So my yes. pure spices, as far as like all the, um, you know, whole spices and the ground spices are about 66, because I've actually counted, I have 66 of them. Like that includes all the whole cumin and then the powdered cumin, the whole coriander and then the powdered coriander. Um, I'm always buying, like I have a list going on my um, phone on a notepad of what I run out of, or if I learned something new, like this week, I learned about a new spice called patharke pool, which basically is a moss that grows on a bark of a tree. Okay. And it's used in a lot of biryani cooking, which I never knew of. Okay, so that's on my list for this weekend's grocery haul. I have to get that patharke full. It's what are you gonna use with that? Uh, you can make like biryanis and curries with it. So I want to okay. try. It's I want to see what kind of umami flavor. It's basically okay. stone flour, which is used in a lot of the island countries too. It's stone okay. flour moss. So I'm going to go and buy that and see what we can do. So I'm constantly accumulating, even like Indian spices. I don't know them all because I think I mentioned before. India is a huge country and all the food is regionalized. What we eat in Indian restaurants today, it's mostly North Indian food or mm -hmm. South Indian food. But there are very few restaurants that focus on like specific cuisines, right. you know, the West Coast or the East Coast or, you know, the entire country. Like I'm telling you, you can make chicken curry like 125 different ways. I love it. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to chat with me about everything. This was great. Thank yeah. you. Well, that does it for this episode. Chef Nilma really knows her way around spices. You can find out more about her and how to sign up for her classes at chefnilma.blogspot.com. We're back next Friday with another outstanding, talented culinary personality you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for listening to the Feast and Fashion Podcast on the Eat, Drink, Dine Podcast Network. I'm your host, Adasha Townsend. Meet me back here next Friday.